0: Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 120, recorded on August 25th, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you, and a big happy birthday to Linux. Today, on the day, as we record, Linus announced Linux on the mailing list 28 years ago. The comp.os.minix mailing list.
1: Yeah, it's not quite 30, but it's getting there, eh?
0: Any excuse to celebrate, Joe? I can't imagine when 30 lands, it's going to be an internet party. But we start the news out this week from System76,
1: who has announced a new firmware updater. Yeah, they're calling this firmware manager, and it's really a front end for their System76-firmware command line tool at the moment, but it is also going to work with FWAPD, or whatever you call it.
0: (laughs) We need a standard name for the firmware update tool.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we really do.
0: So obviously Gnome Software and Discover already do this, and this is a tool that's really being built for Pop!OS and for Debian distributions right now. Could be others in the future if somebody wants to repackage it. So this is like somebody like yourself, really, Joe, who's on... um, Ubuntu and XFCE, or like myself, who's on Ubuntu and XFCE, and I don't use GNOME software very regularly. And in fact, well, I just recently spent a weekend on Wayland and GNOME Shell, and when I opened up GNOME software, I had three firmware updates that I just kind of forgotten about, because nothing really surfaced them for me. And I, you know, like you, if I do want a GUI, I'm going to launch Synaptic.
1: I'm, I'm not, I'm not like,
0: launching GNOME software on XFCE. So I might actually use this.
1: Yeah, same. It's something that I will certainly look into using because I haven't updated the firmware on any of my machines for, well, since I got them pretty much because I don't use GNOME software. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it appearing in the repos, possibly as a snap package. We'll have to see.
0: Obviously, this is for Pop! OS users primarily, um, but I did have a chat with uh, System76's CEO, Carl, about this. And I asked him, are you turning into a software shop and the answer is sort of they're building for pop os customers first but they intend to architect things in a way that make it usable by pretty much anyone in open source they're not trying to limit anybody's use of this it's built in rust both the system 76 components that are just for their firmware and the lvfs components are modules you could build it on a system and have no system 76 firmware support at all if you wanted to Uh, or vice versa. And they've done it in a way where you could even write a cute front end for this thing and submit it upstream to the project and have a cute version that's not GTK-based. I like what they're doing here, because they're solving needs for their situation, but they're doing it in a way that's above and beyond expectations.
1: Yeah, and it's no secret that the hardware OEMs that System76 use are used by other Linux computer vendors, so we could potentially see some benefit for those customers as well. Now from a user standpoint, what they have really created here is essentially a GTK
0: widget library that pops into GNOME settings. So on Pop!OS or, or a different distribution, and even theoretically XFCE desktop in the control panel system settings area, you could have a GTK widget library that pops it open and there's the firmware manager. No dependencies on any other software orchestration. That's really nice, and I really like the open nature of this. They're putting it up on GitHub, they're blogging about the process, and they're openly supporting other front ends. They've built this in a way where it can be GUI agnostic. The core library doesn't depend on GTK. That's super appealing because it could be used wider in the open source ecosystem because of that. Like Those small decisions they've made that really all kind of aggregate into something that's very usable by the rest of the community. Again, I just, I'm really impressed. I, I was... I was skeptical and vocal about that skepticism when System76 didn't just go all in with LVFS like we've seen Lenovo and Dell do recently, but this seems to be a pretty proper response to the sticky situation they find themselves in, and helps everybody out.
1: Well, it's much like with Pop!OS, we were quite skeptical when that came out and thought, well, why don't you just use Ubuntu? And they've kind of proved us wrong to an extent in that they have added value to Ubuntu, and, and- differentiated themselves there. And so sometimes it is worth letting things shake out and seeing what people's long-term plan is, companies' long-term plan, because sometimes what might seem immediately obvious isn't necessarily obvious when you come a few months or years down the line. And the other lesson here is a lot of
0: open source stuff is done out in the open. It's put out there early so that way you can evolve and mature. And that is often a time where things are not fully formed, they're not done yet. I, I'm also coming around to Pop! OS, it seems to have caught the attention of popular YouTubers like Linus Tech Tips, clearly seems to be driving value that users are finding attractive, And I think there's probably still more they could do to make it an even more valuable differentiation. I don't think it's quite there yet, but it's clear they're going in a direction that is obvious now. And that's nice to see. I think there's lessons to take from this, and I hope to see some adoption for this tool to benefit all kinds
1: of other desktops and, most importantly, other distributions too. Well, I've seen quite a lot of skepticism this week, about our next story, and that is the Open Power Foundation aligning with the Linux Foundation and releasing the instruction set architecture for Open Power.
0: Yeah, this is a lot, and this is a big response to the progress we're seeing on RISC V and the pressure from ARM processors. So, to be clear, Big Blue is moving the Open Power Foundation, which it formed with Google, Mellanox Technologies, NVIDIA, and others. Like, this is an established pretty big group, and they're moving that under administrative control of the Linux Foundation, which is a pretty big feather in the Linux Foundation's cap, and they've got so many foundations now, it's feeling more like the Foundation Foundation, (laughs) not so much like the Linux. Foundations for days, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, but to your comment, Joe, about skepticism, you're right. Like, the top comment on LWN is yawn, Hacker News is like Top comments 10 years too late. And people are losing the perspective on this story, sort of like we lost a little perspective on the Pop! OS story early on. And the lessons that we just talked about for that apply to this story as well. This process is something that really began back in 1991. That's how big picture this is. They're moving pieces that have been shuffled around since... Macintoshes had Motorola processors in them. It's a continuous evolution of that effort, and it, it had some rough years. And now, now with workloads like AI and uh, Risk v coming in with an open architecture that's being really kind of um, rapidly adopted in the marketplace, I think, in my opinion, that Open Power Foundation
1: was looking at all of these trends and going, we're missing out. We got to do something. So hang on, are you telling me this story's been developing since before some of our listeners were even born?
0: Yeah, that's the the really kind of crazy thing about this. And that's why it seems like, oh, it's too late. It's just beginning, my friends. It really is, because what they're doing here is they're essentially just really liberally licensing their open power platform. It's not full open source giving away all the things, but it is once you make a deal with them, once you call up them IBM suits and make a deal you get everything you essentially need, including some extra bits
1: that uh, aren't a part of the core PowerPC architecture. It feels like a response to RISC-V, really, but it's been done in a different way. I could not really work out exactly what they've opened up here because they have opened up the ISA, but it's not completely clear to me exactly how they're licensing that, and to what extent you need to be a member of this foundation. Mm. And so there's a bit of a difference there with RISC-V, it's very clear, it's completely open under a permissive license, you can take it and make it proprietary. Whereas with Open Power, there seems to be a little bit of confusion there. We
0: did research into this and it's just not yet defined. In fact, also something else that's pretty critical is their memory interface. It hasn't been fully explained how that's going to be licensed yet either. It's just quote coming out sometime this year end quote. <laughs> well, that didn't tell us anything. Uh, so there's more to happen here, and it really is night and day difference. The the Risk Five platform is much more traditionally open source, and this is just liberally licensed. But I would say IBM's counter argument, from the reading I've done is simply the ecosystem. Yeah, sure, RISC-V might be a more traditional open-source model, but we're liberally licensing the Power9 platform, the PowerPC platform. This open power platform has an ecosystem with these open power processors in workstations. And Power9 processors fill the racks of the world's fastest supercomputers that's an obvious uh, ecosystem that uh, has uh, robust software written for it, Joe, and that would be their counterargument to that uh, new, immature, uh, risky Five platform.
1: But it does feel like an old world company's approach to things. If you contrast it with Risk Five and how that feels more agile somehow, this it does feel like it's a kind of lumbering beast of an old company trying to stay down with the kids somehow. (laughs) Yeah, when it comes to that licensing model, they've, they've tried to
0: bolt on a modern governance model, though, which is kind of interesting. That's part that the Linux Foundation will be managing. This open governance model will have IBM on that board with other foundation members, and IBM gets precisely one vote, same as all of the other foundation members, as to what changes could be made to the Power ISA in the future. Now, IBM could, in theory, still make their own changes and ship it, but anything that's going to become the new standard has to be voted on by all members. So they, they're they bolting on this weird kind of more modern open governance model. I mean, it's weird in the sense that it's not normally paired with a licensing model like this that's not fully clear. But it's more
1: modern than old business, but it still does definitely have that smell. Yeah, and I think that a lot of people, including me, Jump straight for this Risk Five comparison. I think that potentially we're looking at very different markets here.
0: That's, I think, the real truth of it. Very much so. Um, I think whereas Risk Five is obviously more targeted at the embedded, which PowerPC does have some plays there. This is more high end. A, a big focus is extremely high bandwidth interconnections, um, reducing just the complication in communicating with the devices, so that can be even faster. Coming up with maybe a replacement to PCI, all those kinds of things are in the scope of this foundation, and all focused on absolute performance. I just think Risk Five is more focused at the embedded market. You know, you're not seeing Risk
1: Five in a supercomputer anytime soon. Well, not just yet, but maybe one day..
0: <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? Could you imagine we're doing Linux Action News eight hundred and we're talking about how all of the top supercomputers are risk-based, and then you'd you'd like have a whole I told you so"
1: moment here on the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not the only thing the Linux Foundation have been up to this week.
0: It's a summer of foundations, Joe. Like this is it. Like Linux Foundation has really grown this year, and now they've launched the Confidential Computing Consortium which is part of the Linux Foundation.
1: Yeah, and they're pitching this as a community focused on projects securing data in use. And they talk about in the announcement how at the moment we've pretty much got data that is at rest in storage and the encryption of that all sorted out and you know the security of that and data in transit over the network, that's pretty much sorted. But data that is in use, that's in memory and in the processor, that is something that we haven't quite nailed, and that's what this consortium is supposed to be about.
0: Right, or even database tables. Ultimately, their like measure of success would be if two third-party businesses that do not trust each other were able to exchange information and have high confidence in the validity of that information, and so much so that they could conduct a business transaction or uh, some other transaction of trust. That would be their benchmark here. Um, And that is a a good goal. They say current approaches really just don't solve that particular problem. You can tell it's a different time of year, though, Joe, because if we were covering this story at this exact time last year, I feel like every five paragraphs
1: would have the word blockchain in it. (laughs) Yeah. Or there'd be more about Spectre and Meltdown, because that was the first thing I thought about, was the whole attack vector there is data that's in use and in memory and in the CPU. And so this feels like a potentially quite late backlash to that. You could be right, Joe,
0: because if you look at who's involved at this, it's like all the big names in the Linux Foundation. Alibaba Cloud, the ARM Consortium, Google, IBM, Microsoft, Swiss Telecom, Intel. It's like the Linux Foundation was sitting around, you know, they're all having cocktails and they're saying, what could we do here that all of these different companies bring to the table? What could we pull together? So like, well, let's... Let's go get that trusted hardware platform research that Microsoft did, and let's go get Intel Secure Enclave information, and we'll pull that in. And let's go talk to IBM about that work they're doing on that encryption system, and we'll bring that. Like, they went to all of their big players and said, We're holding a, well, a security buffet. What can you bring to the party? And then they're putting it all under this label, this like one brand. It's very businessy, Joe, but at the same time, like, what's it going to take to get our data secured? What's it going to take, Joe?
1: Yeah, when money's involved, people suddenly start taking an interest. And something that people should probably take more of an interest in is supply chain attacks.
0: I never really considered these supply chain attacks, but when you consider that malware authors and attackers are going after the source of open source applications that users get it from, yeah, all right. It, it makes sense. The article here from Dan Gooden over at Ars Technica, we'll have a link in the show notes, and he makes a pretty good argument, essentially running down a history of the most recent dozen attacks, starting off with probably the most well-known one currently, which is the back door that was in Webmin that's recently come to light. And then he quickly points out that there was a backdoor that came to light on Monday, 11 libraries in the RubyGems repository had some form of malware or backdoor, and he's really making the case through this entire article, and I'm forced to agree, that malware authors and attackers have figured out, go after the source that users already trust, like the RubyGems repositories or Webmin from the project site, directly from their site. People think that's safe. You know, I went to the Webmin project and I
1: downloaded it directly from their website. I didn't get it off some mirror. I got it from the source. Yeah, and he does point out that this isn't unique to open source software, but in a way it is kind of more prevalent there. And this really comes back to an issue that we've seen time and time again with open source projects not necessarily being good at the other stuff. They make great software, but they're not necessarily the greatest sysadmins. They don't necessarily have all the best practices in place to stop this kind of thing happening.
0: Right, and there's also the monetary aspect. A lot of times there isn't the money to pay somebody to maintain all of this. I guess, I hope, down the road, computers can solve this problem a little bit. It feels like computers can get better at recognizing these types of attacks, screening these vulnerabilities out of repositories. There's more and more systems we're seeing now around scanning repositories for vulnerabilities or having trusted publishers like the Snap Store does. it seems like we'll, we'll settle on solutions, but it's this Long, meandering
1: process to get there. Well, I was going to bring up Snap and Flatpak, and that perhaps moving to these more modern ways of distributing software, we can hopefully build in some protections against this.
0: Our user base has a really good shot at this, because we are a little more aware of these issues than, say, your average Windows user might be, your, or your, even your average Android user who goes into the store and just gets the freebie phone. They're not thinking about isolation they're not thinking about the source of the software so we have a leg up there that it's even something we're even aware of now what we do with that knowledge <laughs> that's you know that remains to be seen um i do think that the conversation around snaps and packs has been productive in the sense that it's gotten The conversation in the user base going about isolated applications, about giving applications implicit access to certain things like webcam, your file system, hardware, that kind of thing isn't something that we even discussed three or four or five years ago before we started talking about this stuff. And it's raised the level of awareness in the user base. Now, just about every Linux user that's been following this this stuff for a while is aware that there's inherent security issues in X11 and that there's things that applications
1: can do that they shouldn't be able to do, those conversations are healthy. That awareness is healthy. Oh, yeah, definitely. And recently, my eyes have been opened to this because I've been trying to convert a Windows user who is somewhat obsessed with privacy and uses Signal and, you know, he's into VPNs and all that. I've tried to convert him to Linux, and it's it's kind of getting there slowly but surely. And, and he raised the point with me that Linux isn't necessarily any more private than Windows because of things like applications not being isolated from each other and being able to send data around. And so from that complete outsider's point of view, I I feel like he does actually have a point there.
0: Yeah, I can understand that. My response would be the great thing about Linux is you can take it as far as you want. Like you could go to the cubes OS extreme, like you guys tried on choose Linux recently. You could go that far or you could install a flat pack or a snap version of an application that is just slightly isolated or is completely isolated. You can dial that up and down. You can have a read-only file system, you know, all of that stuff. You, you just kind of just have to know how to do it. That's the barrier. And that's why surfacing this stuff to the users by default in a way that doesn't hamper power users, I think is really important. Because I don't think we want to lose sight of the fact that Linux is used primarily by power users developers, system administrators, tinkerers, enthusiasts, those of us who like to play and mess around with our computers. That's a lot of the core Linux user base. And so if you make an operating system that doesn't serve them, you're going to have a bunch of people that are forking projects and complaining all the time. But you have to balance that with presenting sane defaults that provide protection and isolation. And I'd i would I'd be willing to wager in three to four years most distributions are going to ship with the bulk of their core applications isolated,
1: either as flat packs or snaps. It just seems like the way things are going. Well, probably because it comes down to trust. Who do you trust? Whose software do you trust on your computer? Right. Going back to
0: Dan Gooden's piece at Ars Technica, it's it's the attacking the source, that the where the where the user places their trust. And so you really to have full security, you have to have verification and trust at each individual step. Um, It's a lot more work, but I, I do actually think we're making good progress that direction, better progress than the Windows platform, not as good of progress as, say, the mobile platforms.
1: Well, that's been true for quite a while with iOS, and increasingly so these days with Android, but come on, the biggest Android news of the week is that there's gonna be no more desserts, no more sweets, no more Kit Kats and Oreos and all of that. It's just gonna be Android 10.
0: Oh, I was really looking forward to Android quiche, you know, I was really I was hoping this would be the, this would be the one. i I am a little confused by the choice to go with Android Ten. If you check my Twitter feed, I retweeted um, a, a number breakdown of all of the releases of Android. and if you count the betas, which is you know questionable, but if you count the betas, this
1: would be the seventeenth public release of Android. and they're calling it version 10. Yeah, but then they had like various 2.1 here and whatever. They had a lot of point releases. And this is pretty much Android 10, isn't it?
0: I mean, if you want to talk about in feature quality and completeness, maybe. Um, Yeah, I wouldn't call it version 13 because that's unlucky. That's where Apple's going next. But 10 feels like they're not owning their progress. They're like pulling a Microsoft here and just pretending like releases never existed. This completes Google's transition to the new Microsoft. They're now Neo Microsoft. And they are (laughs) complete with this crazy naming scheme. They have now checked all of the boxes.
1: They just need to call Linux a cancer, and then backtrack on it a few years later and totally embrace it.
0: <laughs> Just wait, that'll be during the uh,
1: Fuchsia keynote. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> They do kind of have a fairly good argument, though, that um, if you're international, then some of the, like ice cream sandwich, for example, we have no clue what that is in this country. I literally thought it was ice cream and a couple of bits of bread when I first heard about it. But that's obviously not what it is. And, you know, in some languages and dialects, like L and R are uh, hard to distinguish. And so it was a bit like immature, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. To, you know, it was a bit of fun to start with. But to me, it feels like them kind of drawing a line under the the fun side of it and being really serious now. Android is a, a serious product to compete with iOS, and we're not just a bunch of geeks over in California putting um, you know, statues of donuts outside our offices. We're deadly serious now. They've rebranded the visuals to be much more, well, corporate, I suppose. And it, it just feels like Android growing up with this.
0: Yeah, I wasn't having it ever, to be honest. I'm just giving a hard time for the going to 10, but I never liked the shenanigans. I just thought it was silly. Um, it felt like a cute ploy to try to seem like a, a hipster little startup you know, from a big mega corporation. And now with this rebranding that they've kind of done, they've redone the logo a little bit and the dropping of the uh, desserts, it does feel like the growing up. Uh, the they've, They're breaking outside that enthusiast trap where they're trying to over-accommodate the people that they used to get off the ground, and now they're trying to sell to the mass market, which is the inevitable outcome of the Android Initiative. I think you make a fair point that some of these things don't make any sense outside the states either. That was it never really it. Never really seemed to make sense either that it was candy when Google is so like health food oriented kind of imagery. Mm. I never really got it, but um, it was a way to get some
1: some retweets, <laughs> I suppose. And uh, they always had that little Easter egg where you could get the uh, the Android version, and it'd be. I just keep coming back to KitKat because that's the one that really stuck in my mind because it was the first one where they kind of sold out, really, and and got a brand on board, especially Nestle, which is not exactly the most ethical company in the world.
0: I guess my other only thing is I just like the way Android Q sounds. Like, drop the candy thing and just keep the letter. Android Q is a rad name. That's a great name. (laughs) But it doesn't matter. Android 10, as it will be known, Looks like a pretty solid release. My Pixel device is ready and welcoming.
1: It's funny that I've just updated to Android 9 this week through Lineage OS 16. So I don't think I'll be getting Q or 10 anytime soon. <laughs> just got
0: to wait till you brick the next device, Joe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, I did have some problems this week. Although, actually, I saw today that uh, a lot more of the OnePlus phones now are officially supported with Lineage, which is good news including the 6, which was, I think, the last one with the headphone jack. So if and when my 3T dies, I might well be picking up a 6.
0: I got to admit, I was eyeballing a couple of the OnePluses at the Sprint that we had recently. Alex really has a nice OnePlus. I, I could see that. I, I may, I might not get a Pixel next time. I might consider a OnePlus instead. Stay tuned and find out. Actually, stay tuned and find out all of the news in open source and Linux land. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways
1: to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us.
0: Now, here's a last minute FYI. I'm going to Lexington, Kentucky on the 29th. I'll be there at a meetup with a very special guest and a lot more details to come soon. So probably the best place to go is just meetup.com slash jupiter Broadcasting, because we don't have it posted yet, because we are still working out all the fine last minute stuff. But if you're in that area, Lexington, Kentucky, on the 29th of August, 2019, I'd love to see you at dinner. Meetup.com slash jupiter Broadcasting.
1: So that means you've only got a few days after hearing this. So yeah, make sure you do check out meetup.com slash broadcasting.
0: Now we have some new content for you as well, extras.show. Go check that out. And we have a flash briefing skill now for your Echo device. Once a week, Linux Action News in your flash briefing. Go check that out if you'd like to get us there on your smart Echo thing.
1: I wouldn't know about that. I don't have things listening to me all the
0: time, I'm afraid. I think I've got one in nearly every room now, Joe. It's It's like a rash.
1: <laughs> That's one word for it. All right. Well, we'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us. And we will see you next week. See you later.